Good afternoon. I think it's something I've decided to do every time I preach, just make sure the mic is working and greet you at the same time. So last week, we saw Haman's humiliation, and we saw Mordecai's exaltation. Uh, We saw how God brought deliverance to his people uh, through the people that he raised up. So Esther and Mordecai. We're ending our time in Esther today, and as we end our journey in this book, uh, my prayer for us is that we would gladly live with celebration because of God's deliverance for His people. Yet, also consider that in deliverance for God's people, there is destruction for His enemies. If you're taking notes, the main point today is this. God's deliverance brings celebration to his people, but destruction for his enemies. God's deliverance brings celebration to his people, but destruction for his enemies. Our first point, a new edict. So our text begins with Esther pleading with the king. She falls at his feet, weeping, begging for an end to Haman's plan that's been set in motion against her and her people. Now, maybe as you're reading this, uh, Esther's emotional state might seem strange, especially if you've read the entire book of Esther, because we know the ending. Um, But for Esther and her people at that time, they did not know what the end of the story would be for them. In fact, at that moment itself, they were still as good as dead because the law that Haman had put out was still in effect. And we know from earlier on in the book of Esther, according to the tradition of that kingdom, any any command that's given, it cannot be reversed. There's no going back to any law that's been put out. And so since the first month of that year, because of Haman's command through King Xerxes, there were many people who were actively preparing to destroy the Jews, to destroy the people of God. They were all preparing for that 13th day of the month of Adar, basically the 12th month of that year. So Esther is correct in begging for Xerxes' favor again for her next request. So, so though Haman has already, this enemy of the Jews, he's already been destroyed. We saw that in chapter 7 last week. Though that's happened already, nothing is promised with King Xerxes. You know, for, for how long can someone show you favor? We have some friends in this room who have friends in high places. And when you meet those people, though you have a friendship, you still don't assume that they're going to give you favor. You still approach them in such a way that, okay, I know they're my friend, but I still have to act with respect and seek their favor. So the king, King Xerxes, he extends his golden scepter and then Esther stands before him. So verses five onwards, it says, if it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? 
King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I've given his estate to Esther and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. And so on the 23rd day of that month, the third month, a new command was sent out. And with Xerxes' permission, uh, Mordecai's new commands were written to all the leaders and governors. And it was uh, each written in in the various languages and and writing scripts of all the different parts of, of the kingdom. There's 127 provinces. So you can imagine how many different notices were being put out. And every nationality under Xerxes' rule is to know that Jews were granted in every city uh, the right to come together and to protect themselves against their enemies. And it's going to be a law. This is going to be a law in every single one of the provinces. So now there would be basically two edicts coming out of the king's palace concerning the, the 13th day of the month of Adar. So one, a command for all to destroy the Jewish people, uh, to steal their belongings because they're different from all the others and don't obey the king's laws. And then the other command, a command giving all Jews a right to come together and protect themselves and destroy all who would attack. Um, they can destroy or they can kill and annihilate the armed men, including women and children of any nationality uh, or province who would attack them. They can also take uh, the belongings of their enemies. So time was short. So the royal messengers rode out on, on the king's special fast royal horses out of the citadel of Susa. Um, and this, this new command needed to go all over the kingdom. Now, if you remember, when Haman's edict came out, Mordecai was dressed in sackcloth. He was was weeping, and he wasn't even allowed to walk past the king's gate. But now, in this text, he leaves the king's presence, uh, dressed in royal garments of blue, of white. He has a large crown of gold and and a purple robe of fine linen. Uh, He's wearing King Xerxes' uh, signet ring, which tells you how much power he has in the kingdom now. And Haman's edict, as we saw in Esther 4, it brought mourning and weeping to all of God's people because of a day of destruction that was coming. But now there was a joyous celebration in every province and city. There was was feasting and celebrating because of the new edict. There was happiness, there was joy, there was gladness, there was honor. And many people feared the Jews now. Some even from other nationalities choosing to become Jews because they were so afraid. Esther, we we know that Esther desired to see her family and and her people saved from destruction that was coming. And it made me think for us today, do, do we have that same care and concern for our family and friends who don't know Jesus? Um, EBC members, our our covenant calls us to bring any under our care in the training and instruction of the Lord by a loving example, speaking the gospel, and seeking the salvation of our family, our friends, and our neighbors. Fathers and mothers, do, do we seek to raise the children God has given us in His ways? 
and, and parents, as a means of encouragement to you, um, share with other parents how you are seeking to live out this part of the covenant. My wife and I, uh, we're relatively young parents compared to some in this room, like David with five grandkids and five kids, my goodness. Praise the Lord. Um, my wife and I have been personally challenged by the many godly examples of parents from within this church in, in how they raise their children in the care and instruction of the Lord. Now, some of you are parents who have, who have made a sacrifice to come overseas just to provide for your family back home. And that's a difficult thing. I, I respect you so much. There are so many who respect you in this church. And I wanna encourage you, if this is you, to keep loving your family by leading them even though you are here. You're away from them for the sake of their daily living, yet do not give up leading them spiritually for the sake of their eternal living. Pray and take any opportunity to speak of heavenly things with your spouse and with your children. And would God give you wisdom in this? I just want to encourage you parents, if you are here for the sake of your family back home. And volunteers with Children's Ministry, I think a lot of them are not here. I just want to commend you for the time you take to, to put together and teach good biblical material for the little ones. Uh, the time you take children into God's Word is going to bear fruit in His good time. And fellow member, when was the last time you felt a tangible heavy burden to pray for that co-worker or, or that family member or, or that housemate that does not believe Jesus? How often do you pray for opportunities to speak about Jesus and the good news to them? You know, how often do you take those opportunities when they come to you? You know, when was the last time you knelt, actually physically knelt down in prayer, earnestly crying out to God to save your friend? You know, we Christians, we cry out to God in prayer because it's ultimately only God who can save a person. We're human and we don't have that power that is well beyond our jurisdiction. It is God by the power of His Holy Spirit who transforms someone's heart and causes them to have a new love for God and a hatred for all things that are against God. And just like how a runner presses on, imagining the finish line, just a few more steps around the corner, friends, how differently would we pursue those who are lost if the eternal fires of God's judgment were as clear in our mind? If God's wrath in hell was clear in our mind, just as, it would, as the finish line would be around the corner for a runner, how much more seriously would we consider reaching out to those who are lost? Often we assume we have lots of time because tomorrow always comes, but we never know when time will be up. To Christians, you're in Christ here. Let us ask God to give us an Esther-like desire to see the lost saved from eternal destruction. And we can ask God for this with confidence because it's in His nature to answer prayers like this. It's in His nature to deliver His people. So in Esther 8.17 as well, that this new edict that went out, it caused people to rejoice and celebrate. Uh, the king's word can be trusted 
because of the custom that they had. Once a command is made, it cannot be taken back. And so as imperfect as King Xerxes was, there was some confidence that this human king would accomplish his purposes. Now, how much more with the God of heaven and earth, the God of all creation, the God who, as Numbers 23, 19 says, the God who never lies. Do we have the same kind of trust concerning what God says he will do in our lives? And maybe you know this, but it's just a dry theological fact that you've put away in some part of your personal theology. Do the promises of God for you in the Bible, do they cause you to celebrate? Is there actual joy and gladness for you? Or do his words simply read as hollow letters that hold no weight? Here at EBC, we believe that God's words is the final authority for how we live in this world. And that's why every week, every weekly gathering, we seek to have God's word preached to us. It's where the point of the sermon is the point of the text. Because it's the very same God who spoke creation into existence that speaks to us in his Bible. Friends, would his word be sweeter than honey to us? Would it truly be like a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path? So as we move on now to Esther 9, we've already seen how the new command has caused rejoicing and celebration for God's people but fear in the hearts of others. So my second point, destruction and deliverance, celebration and remembrance. Esther 9 and 10. So on the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month, both edicts by the king were to be carried out. Uh, many enemies of God's people all over Xerxes' kingdom who had a year to prepare hoped to overpower the Jews. And instead, the tables were turned and the people of God got the upper hand over those who hated them. And just like the new edict said, the Jews assembled together in cities all across the kingdom, and they protected themselves from those who made plans to destroy them as they sought to carry it out. And no one could stand against them because people of all the other nationalities were also afraid. Even the nobles, the, the governors, and the administrators helped the people of God. The Jews were helped by the officials because they, they had a fear of Mordecai. They had that, they had that divine wasta, so to speak. Um, and though we don't see God in the book, if you notice, God hasn't appeared in the book yet. The, the, it's not there. Um, though we don't see him in the book, we see how he has brought divine favor by putting Mordecai and Esther in the right places for the good of the people of God. So Mordecai's reputation grew. Um, he was prominent in the palace and the provinces. So let me read from chapter 9, verse 5 onwards. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Puratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Barmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vaizata, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamidatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. 
So on the day where under one edict a whole people race was meant to be destroyed out of the world, instead under another edict, it's, it's all reversed. The people of God struck down their enemies, killing those who hated them. Uh, those who've been planning for almost a year since Haman's edict came out. We read from verse 11. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It'll be given you. What is your request? It'll also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the 10 sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. So the Jews had so many enemies that Esther had to request for an additional day for God's people to deal with the remaining enemies. Now this section, as I was reading it, it reminded me of our ability, the ability for some of us here to, to worship as Christians because of the many men and women who have put their lives on the line in the past in this region to destroy enemies. Until this day, some of them continue to do so. Now notice though, though Mordecai's edict allowed it, the Jews did not lay their hands on the belongings of the enemies. And all 10 sons of Haman were named, which tells you that though their father has already died, um, Haman's hatred for Mordecai and the people of God has continued on in the life of his sons, resulting in their demise. So in Haman's desire to destroy the Jews, I wonder if he considered how his life would affect his family, how his choice to destroy God's people would affect his son's lives. An application for us to consider here is this. Consider that our sins, our sin will affect those around us. It could potentially destroy the lives of those around us. And perhaps even now, there are some of you here who indulge in private sin, who are struggling with private sin, convinced that you can continue to do so in isolation. But God warns us in Hebrews 3.13 that sin is deceitful. It fools you and it hardens a heart that is soft to God's word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a believer here and you're tempted to sin next time, Firstly, I want to ask you to think about the God who has saved you and how you're willfully disobeying. And second, I want you to think about the fellow church members. Think about your family and how your sin could affect them. Consider the warnings of Proverbs 4, 4 14 to 15. Want me to read? It says, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. So that's Proverbs 4, 14 to 15. And listen to the encouragement for the righteous in Proverbs 4, 18. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. 
So if you're struggling with sin and you're a believer here, I want to encourage you to come forward and, and confess your sin to a fellow believer who can remind you that there is hope for you in Christ. It's not the end. There is hope and grace for you in Jesus. Our choices to continue disobeying God could eventually affect those we love and care about. Friends, would God help us fear now what could be one day when sin destroys us and those that we love? Now, I'm sure you're all thinking about this. Uh, passages like Esther 9, especially the parts about God, the people of God defending themselves by destroying enemies who attack, potentially including women and children, can be very difficult to read. But when we come to passages like this, we have to keep some things in mind. Firstly, God's promise to save eternally is tied to an earthly people. So God's promise to save eternally is tied to an earthly people. So in history past, God had planned to eternally save his sinners to himself by promising that from within the Jewish people, a savior will come. That's why every Christmas time, as Christmas gets closer, we read all these prophecies arising out of the people of God regarding the one who would come. So our eternal salvation was tied up in the earthly preservation of the people of God. The survival of the Jews at this point was necessary for God to fulfill his promise to save mankind. So out of the physical deliverance of the Jews comes the eternal, the eternal deliverance humanity needs in Jesus. So God worked in and through human history to bring his salvation plan into being. And we can see this in all of the Bible. It's, it's exactly why in, in Luke 24, 4 onwards, Jesus talks about how the writings of Moses and all the prophets and the Psalms talk about him. So that's first. God's promise to save eternally is tied to an earthly people. Second, God is just in judging sin. So though God intends to fulfill his promise to save, to eternally save through the people of Israel, he does judge them for their sin and rebellion. In fact, the Old Testament is full of places where you see God doing this to them. You know, God warns them of judgment that would come upon them if they disobeyed him. One example in Deuteronomy 8, he says to them, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So this is God speaking to his own people. And ultimately, we know that God has sent his people into exile because of their sinful rebellion against him. Listen to this in Lamentations 2, verses 5 to 6. Listen to how God is described because he judged his people. Listen to this. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. So this same God is judging his own people for sin. So he's fair. He's, he's not unjust. He is just. He doesn't overlook sin. Thirdly, the people who are judged by God through Israel are deserving of God's judgment. So the people who are judged by God through Israel are deserving of God's judgment. In Deuteronomy 9, 
God tells the people why he's driving the Canaanites out. He tells the people of Israel, he tells them, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess this land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So as we look at some of the history of the enemies of God's people in the Bible, such as the Amalekites, we know them to be evil. They did some terrible things like sacrificing their children to their gods. And so that, that thread of wickedness from the time of Agag against the people of God continued on with Haman as he sought, to, as he sought the complete destruction of Jews in the time of Esther. But friends, ultimately, all humanity is broken by sin. That's just a fact. And maybe you've struggled reading some of these passages, and I just want to say we are right to be saddened by these judgments we've seen God give through his people. It's, it's a physical reminder of how ultimately evil we are and how separated we are from God as his creation. Yet, in his goodness, he does not allow evil to go unpunished in this life nor eternity. Friends, as much as we grieve the physical loss of human life, are we, do we grieve the same or are we just as horrified when we think about those who are destined for eternal destruction? Are we just as horrified as we consider those who are lost and, and doomed for eternal destruction? Or does, or does finite physical survival seem more important than where someone will be for eternity? Friends, as we, as we come across challenging sections like this, remember that we can trust that God is not just sovereign, but he's also good. In his goodness, he judges evil. In his goodness, his justice wins above wickedness. And, and though sometimes we might struggle to reconcile the loss of human life with God's love, we take God at his word when it says about him in Deuteronomy 32, his works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Let me keep reading from verse 20 onwards. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving of presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamidatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be pale, impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word poor, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. 
The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. These days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their, among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Nabihil, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. Chapter 10, King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. So such, such a great deliverance of God's people ought to be remembered by them in, in celebration. Um, Haman and the enemies of God's people at that time, they had their final meal, but for those delivered from destruction, the, the celebration goes on. So to this day, I've never attended a celebration, but Purim is celebrated by the Jews as a national feast. And on that day, the entire book of Esther is read. And there is celebration when Mordecai or, or Esther or even Harbona is mentioned, but there's a lot of loud booing when Haman's name is read. In the events of Purim, the, the themes of destruction, uh, deliverance, and celebration, all these themes, they echo in tune with God's divine favor over his people as he preserved their lives through Esther and Mordecai raised up. Now, we believers, Christians, we don't celebrate a feast like Purim, but we as a church do practice the Lord's Supper. You know, at the Lord's Supper, we have the opportunity to celebrate when we look back uh, to when Jesus willingly had his body broken and his blood shed on a Roman cross. And on so many levels, the Lord's Supper is a very, very important meal for us believers because it's, it's a physical reminder of God's eternal deliverance for us through Jesus Christ. So it's, it's a celebration directly tied to what God did in history past. It's also a physical reminder of what God will do in the future when Jesus will come again for the sinners he has saved. The judgment that falls on the enemies of God's people in Esther, friends, it's an image of the final judgment that will come. On that day, nobody can hide from God when he will judge the living and the dead, uh, when he will open his books and bring to account all that we have done on earth. But there are those who will rejoice, those who will celebrate and feast and be glad. 
but not because they are good or righteous in and of themselves. They'll be rejoicing only because of the deliverance God has sent. It's Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ alone, sinners like you and I, though unrighteous and every bit deserving of God's just wrath, were forgiven because God extends his favor to us in his Son. And this Jesus, our Savior, our Deliverer, he takes God's wrath meant for us upon himself. And in doing so, he defeats our enemy, sin and death, once and for all. And now, he, our Deliverer, continues representing us before God the Father, forever risen from his battle with death. And friends, if you're in Christ, this favor he shows to us, it lasts a lifetime and more. This deliverer Jesus every day is faithful to his people. And if you're in Christ, he is your shepherd and he will faithfully bring you home to him. If you're here today and you're not a believer, friend, I urge you to seriously consider the claims of the Bible. It claims that if you're not in Christ, God opens, he's gonna open your book in front of you and you'll see all the deeds you've done and you would be found guilty in front of him. But you don't need to fear this anymore. As I mentioned, God has sent a savior. He has sent a deliverer and that savior is Jesus. And Jesus had to come. There was no other way. He had to come because there is not enough good you can do in this life to undo all the wrong you have done in front of a holy God. So friend, if you're not in Christ, I beg you, turn away from the darkness and destruction that awaits you. Turn towards the eternal joy and everlasting kindness God gives you in Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life you could have never lived and he died to pay the price of your life. And he rose from the dead to show that he has paid it in full. So though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though your sins are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. As far as east is from the west, so he will remove your sin from you. Non-Christian, there is still space for you at the table where you can fellowship with God himself and his people. There is still place for you to join the forever celebration. So I beg you, repent and trust in Jesus today. As we end our time in Esther, there's a few applications for us to consider. Firstly, Remember God's deliverance in your life. EBC, let's be a church family that is quick to remind one another of how God has delivered us out of our darkness into his marvelous light. Or it can even be a time when God actually preserved you from physical death. Perhaps today, if you're going to a fellowship dinner after this, maybe ask someone how God has done this and maybe how God has saved them uh, spiritually, or even preserve them physically from death. So remember God's deliverance in your life. Secondly, long for the day when God will judge all the wicked. Long for the day when God will judge all the wicked. 
Now, perhaps it's strange to say out loud, Lord, I wait for the day when you judge the wicked. But that longing for justice is something that lies deep within every single human being. You feel it when you are wronged or you see someone wronged. Uh, you sense it when you see the, the bad guy in a movie get what they deserve at the end. Um, your, your blood boils when you see justice not fairly being given to those who suffer. As believers, friends, we, we cannot and should not ever use the book of Esther as a foundation for violent force. I just want to make that very clear. Um, if you meet a Christian who uses Esther as a justification for inflicting harm for the sake of the gospel, they've completely misunderstood the Bible and what it calls believers to. You know, God has already completed his plan of salvation in Jesus. It is Jesus who has fought the war against sin and death, and he's won. You know, Ephesians 6 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We now fight a spiritual battle, and our armor is spiritual. So in Jesus, we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might to fight the spiritual battle as we continue to live in between two worlds. So till then, long for the day when God will judge all the wicked. So though Esther happened a long time ago, uh, we have more ties to them than we think, to the people of, of that time. In the survival of the Jewish people comes the deliverance we now hold on to as we wait for Christ's return. We, d we don't see any actual miraculous feats of God, like no raising of, of waves or no plagues per se. And for a lot of us, that's, that's a situation that we can relate to as Christians. I don't know how many of us have actually seen miraculous things done as believers. So, but instead of extraordinary things in the book of Esther, we see a God sovereignly working behind every scene through ordinary means. So though his name is nowhere to be found, we see God's divine favor orchestrating all things towards his purposes for his glory and our good. And ultimately, it's the same God who brings us deliverance. It's the same God who brings rejoicing for us, but a destruction that is coming for his enemies. Friends, in Jesus Christ, God brings his people deliverance. God brings his people deliverance for his people and destruction for his enemies. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, I beg that your word would do its work in our hearts. And Father, I have confidence that your word will work because it cuts through the bone and marrow of our souls. And God, thank you for this time that we have spent in Esther. God, give us faith and maturity to see that you are always with us in all things. And Father, your divine favor does not change as you continue to work all things together for your glory and our good. And Father, for those who don't believe in you in this room, we pray that you give them the precious gift of faith. Lord, we long to see them rejoicing with us because of salvation you bring through Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.